When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Before we start this episode of Calling the Shots with Adam Collins and Daniel Norcross, a word about the Wisdom Cricketers Almanac. Daniel, it, it's such a, an esteemed publication that I, I feel like um, most people listening to this podcast will already know an awful lot about the Almanac, but we've both been going uh, through our bookshelves this afternoon and we can tell them a little bit more. Well, we have, and, and given that today's episode of Calling the Shots is going to be, uh, well, it's going to begin really with the birth of Tesmat Special, which began in 1957. I have dug around on my bookshelves, which is something you can do if you buy a Wisden Almanac, of course. And I've found the 1958 wisdom, which pertains to the 1957 season. And I thought I'd just give you a little quiz, because we've spent quite a bit of time, have we not, talking about 1957, an epic series between England and the West Indies. And who were the five cricketers of the year, do you think? Well, have a stab at a couple of them. Not all of them are obvious. This always gets challenging, because the the thing with the wisdom five is that you can only win it once. So I'm tipping that Cowdery and May and and Gravney and and maybe even Loder might have already won it. I'm tipping that, uh, that, that Frank Worrell may have won it in 1951 after his heroics in 1950. So I'm going to battle a bit here. Maybe Walcott. Walcott, Walcott, Walcott is a very good answer. Yes, yes. Ding. Excellent. What about Weeks? Did no. Weeks made runs at Lords in 57? Weeks had already got it, I believe. What about any of the aforementioned greats? Yes, uh, well, you did. You, you were right that most of them didn't uh, appear as a, a, a cricketer of the year, except for the man who got that hat trick, of course, Peter Loder. And uh, we'll have some commentary from that hat trick later on. For my part, I, I was uh, going through my collection today and I added a new one, which was the 2003 Wisden Cricketers Almanac. And Daniel, I'm going to quiz you. What was unique? What, what, was, what happened for the first time in the 2003 edition of the Good Book? Well, 2003 edition, I would think, would be edited by the mighty Tim Delisle. Indeed it was. But I can't think the first time wouldn't have been colour. I don't know. You'll have to tell me. No, it wasn't colour. They, they went to the yellow colour, I think in 65, didn't they? The, uh, the, the, the dust cover we, we know today. In 2003, it was the first year where we had a picture on the front to accompany the title. And of course, oh, in 2003, that was Michael Vaughan after all the runs he made against India in, in the home summer of 2002. So in 2003, Michael Vaughan was the first photograph on the front of the Wilson Almanac. And that I have ordered today. So that'll be coming in a couple of days. I hope the photograph's better than the portrait of him that sits in the yes. Lord's long room. <laughs> Uh, Daniel, the reason why we love talking about Wisden Almanac is because it's an institution. It's part of the blood of the game, I suppose, and, and, and you just got to be part of it. And you can join that club. The, the most straightforward way of joining that club, Dan, is becoming a subscriber to the Almanac, and it could not be any easier to do so. WisdenAlmanac.com forward slash subscribe, and, and the incentives are there to do so. Yeah, this way, it's just £25 
for an edition of Wisden Almanac instead of £55. It entitles you to exclusive discounts on Wisden Cricket Monthly, The Night Watchman, and priority access to Wisden events, a site-wide 35% discount on all books at bloomsbury.com. A great edition in 2020 as well, which you can learn more about at wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2020, of course, because, Daniel, the 2019 summer, much like 1957, was action-packed. Well, it really was. There's the World Cup final, of course. There's the Ashes. There's the entire World Cup. There are so many great games in there. There are so many terrific articles. It's a, it's a year to remember, and it's one I fancy that a lot of us are just reliving while we're stuck indoors. So the best way to do that is to get your hands on the Bible and uh, relive it all over again. That's right, wisdomalmanac.com forward slash 2020. There's also The Shorter Wisdom, which is an e-book, so uh, you can read it on your, your, your tablet or your phone uh, and just get the, the, the nutrients from the front, all the essays, the fantastic writing you get each year in sections one and two. And also the audiobook. Now, if you're listening to a cricketing podcast about the history of cricket commentary, chances are you're probably already au fait with audiobooks. But that's another way you can consume wisdom at wisdom.com forward slash 2020. And if you want to subscribe and have it on your shelf year in and year out, and why wouldn't you? Wisdomalmanac.com forward slash subscribe. As Holly pitches the ball up slowly and he's bold. Bradman, bold, Holly's. No. And then volley to Bradman. Spore well pitched. Bradman moves forward, drives. Cotton at cover tries to cut it off, but is beaten by the pace of the ball, and it races away for another four. No, is it? Is it the Ashes? Yes, England have won the Ashes. That's it. It's all. It's high. It's miles in the air. Hughes is coming around, and so it's all. It's all. What a catch! What a catch! That's the greatest catch. Oh. Unbelievable, Stephen Waugh. Out! He's got two! He, he's, yes! He's caught it on the third attempt. He's on a hat-trick. Can you believe that? In, out, in, out. What a bowler. And he's done it. Gatting has absolutely no idea what has happened to it. He still doesn't know. Oh, Stephen Harmison! With a slower ball. One of the great balls. Comes up and bowls, and Kasparovic goes back and parries one as he caught down the leg side. There's an appeal for catches out. England have won. Got him! Why did he do that? Unbelievable. And now both for Bolter! Six wickets for Andy Shropsall, England's hero. England win the World Cup. He's got it! England have won the World Cup by the barest of margins. By the barest of all margins. Ecstasy for England! Agony! Agony for New Zealand! Through the covers! Steve Smith is back! Up in the air again! Western Terrace again! Six again! And in comes Pat Cummins from the far end. He bowls to Stokes who hammers it for four! And stands there with the back raised! I can't believe we've seen that! They're looking for that, let alone chasing it. It's going straight into the confectionery stall and out again. I'm Adam Collins. 
I'm Daniel Norcross. And this is Calling the Shots, presented by The Pinch Hitter. That's the new fortnightly digital magazine containing some of the best cricket writing in the world. Indeed it is. It's a terrific initiative, supporting freelance cricket writers at this particularly challenging time. Jump on the nightwatchman.net to read the latest edition. That link is also in the show notes. Adam and I, over six episodes, are tracing the history of cricket commentary on radio and television. From the Australian and English pioneers of the 1920s and 1930s to the internationally recognised names we know today. Exploring what makes a great commentator and how their broadcasts come to inform our understanding of the game we love. Last time we followed the journey of cricket broadcasting from 1922, charting the worldwide fascination with Bradman's extraordinary feats and how it drove broadcasters to innovate and adapt. This week, we take you on a helter-skelter journey through the second half of the 20th century as we pick up the story in the 1950s with the launch of the most successful and enduring brand radio sport has ever produced, Test Match Special. To help us tell that story, we have three guests. When I started, there was very much um, a sort of leg-pulling mentality about Test Match Special. There isn't now. Jonathan Agnew, BBC cricket correspondent and voice of Test Match Special for the last 29 years. So we'd sit at the back with those very early laptops and create a, a perfect sort of letterhead f- fax and press a button and you'd sit going up at the fax machine in the corner of the box and you'd tear it off. And I remember doing Henry once with rival carpet companies from Sheffield, where the first one was something like, Dear Henry Blofeld, we think you're the best commentator in the world. If you mention our carpets, we'll send you a free one. All the best. Uh, so-and-so at Jones's Carpets, Sheffield. So, well, I dare old things. So, there we go. And you can see it sort of fold the facts up and pop it into his top pocket with a free carpet coming his way. So, at the back, meanwhile, there's Jones's Carpets from Sheffield. It's an absolute disgrace. Uh, we heard you give a blatant plug to our main rival here in Sheffield. If you don't give us a mention, too, we're going to report to the Director General. Boom. And sent that off. So, blowers. Oh, my word. Uh, well, obviously, um, <laughs> some very fine carpet makers in Sheffield. And uh, as you can see, it'll tear up rather sadly the fact that it's guaranteeing his free one. The first test match I did was at Lord's. That's Vic Marks, former England spinner, cricket correspondent for The Guardian and TMS summariser since 1984. I look over there and there's Brian Johnson, who I'd listened to when I was, you know, 10. And of course, he would greet you as if you were a long lost friend. Well, I'd never met him before. <laughs> but but nonetheless, that didn't matter. You'd, oh, world's you. And it was all a little bit unnerving, actually, that there he is, this person I'd listened to, sitting next to me, treating me as if he's known me for a decade. I think Brian Johnston might have been involved. And Peter Baxter, of course, who joins us again. Test Match Special's longest serving producer working on the show across five decades. He'd come to the end of his time as the staff cricket correspondent at the compulsory retirement age of 60 at the end of the previous season, 72. And I rather think that he lent on Robert Hudson, who might otherwise have been nervous of making a 26-year-old the cricket producer. We begin where we left off last week, 1948. By then, the BBC had assembled a stellar team of John Arlett, Rex Alston and Jim Swanson to call Test Cricket, but they still had no permanent radio home. Even the following ashes in 1953 that saw England get their hands on the trophy for the first time since Douglas Jardine had outfoxed Bradman 21 years earlier were still only available piecemeal, popping up for a few hours here and there on BBC's home service and the light programme, while making so far unrequited passes at the third programme, launched in 1946 and dedicated solely to music. 
England followed up their 1953 success with a rare victory down under in 1954-55. After years of post-war gloom, a new golden generation of English cricketers, among them Peter May, Colin Cowdery, Fred Truman and Brian Statham, were restoring former glories to a fading empire. But still there was no uninterrupted ball-by-ball coverage. The BBC needed a catalyst. A man called Robert Hudson, who was one of the great commentators, and he was uh, at Scarborough doing a a match there. He's got Truman on the hat-trick, coming to the end of his half-hour designated slot on the home service. With 45 seconds to go, they let Truman go, and he came running in, and um, Cyril Poole propped forward and pushed it into the hands of short leg, and he was out. Hudson screamed, it's a hat-trick, back to the studio, and sat back thinking there must be a better way. And he then devised how this could work, especially for international cricket, with the use of Radio 3, or as it was then the third network, it would all be there. In that intervening year, 1956, Jim Laker took 19 wickets at Old Trafford. Well, Old Trafford has redeemed itself with the last hour of flawless sunshine. And Laker comes in again, hair flopping. Bowles turns it on to Matic, appeals, he's out LBW, and Laker's taken all ten. The first man to congratulate him is Ian Johnson. And England have won by an innings and 170. And Laker has taken all 10 wickets for 53 in the second innings. All 10 for 53. I believe that to have been the final nudge. With the support of Charles Max Muller, head of outside broadcast, and Michael Took Hastings, one of his studio managers, Hudson's proposal was gaining traction. And as it turned out, those earlier flirtations with the third programme were not in vain. It was they who agreed to give cricket a permanent home and a phenomenon was born. In May 1957, the Radio Times finally announced the launch of a new programme. picture of Peter May doing an on-drive. That was right on the cover with a little box showing how the timings would work and the fact that they were going to call it Test Match Special. But yes, the slogan was, don't miss a ball, we broadcast them all. <laughs> Pretty dreadful, really. <laughs> and on the 30th of May 1957... Test Match Special was launched at Edgebaston, England, hosting the West Indies. But they weren't prepared for all eventualities. When they first did it, the first morning it rained a little and nothing happened. And he actually, no one had discussed what would happen if that went on. And they sort of talked for a bit and eventually a desperate voice said in his headphones, for God's sake, hand back to the studio. Despite that initial rain, TMS got lucky. First up, they would get a game that is talked about to this day. Smith Bell shot. Cowdery has placed it gently towards third man. And the extra applause is because the partnership is now worth the monumental figure of 400. And May has hit the next one high in the air, six into the pavilion. Just over mid on. And he's also scored a mere 250. 253 to be precise. The stand of 411 between May and Cowdery remains England's highest for any wicket. The statistician Jack Price on that first test match, he was the man in the Midlands, uh, sort of came into his own with all the records being broken. And the noteworthy performances just kept on coming in that summer of 57. Cowdery followed his 154 at Edgbaston with 152 at Lords. Graveney almost outdid May with 258 at Trent Bridge, where Frank Worrell also carried his bat for 191. And then to cap it off, Peter Loder achieved a feat unseen for 19 years. And again, those seven close fieldsmen 
grouped around the bat and three up out in the defensive positions and loader from the pavilion end comes in now bowls to Gilchrist and he's bowling all over the place it's a hat trick and loader is jumping about like a monkey on a stick Test match special had lucked out they were following a truly great England team at the peak of its powers it had been a season for the ages. Behind the scenes, Chick Hastings was now established as TMS's first producer, even if cricket was not his main passion. Fortunately, he was armed with a coterie of highly competent and respected commentators who were rewarded with plenty more outstanding moments over the coming years. It's Benno to May. Now, this is an intriguing duel. He's had a go at that. Has he been bowled round his legs? Baldy, my Must thing. have been. Bowled for naught round his legs. He, stay, he stood there and swung... Drought was quite certain he bowled him. May couldn't believe it. And May's out bowled Benno North. What a funny game cricket is. There's Rex Holston calling the thrilling and Ashes retaining last session victory at Old Trafford in 1961 as Richie Benno ran amuck. And then two years later, listeners were presented with another last day nail-biter as Colin Cowdery defied a broken wrist to help thwart the West Indies at Lords with 40-year-old polymath Alan Gibson on the microphone. A feverish atmosphere now as Hall comes in with three balls to go and bowls to Shackleton and Shackleton flashes outside the off stump, doesn't get a touch and they go through for a very quick single and Shackleton's going to be run out. 228 for nine. They are not coming in. We must therefore presume that with two balls to go, Cowdery will come in, but Allen, as a result of the batsman having crossed, has at least got the bowling. And the applause seems to me to indicate that Cowdery is coming out. And the cheering tells you that, in fact, he is. There are two balls to go. England, needing 234 to win, are 228 for nine, with Cowdery, his left forearm in plaster, coming out to join Allen. Wesley Hall is going to bowl the last ball of the match from the pavilion end to Allen. And he comes in and bowls it, and Allen plays defensively, and the match is drawn, and the crowd comes swarming onto the field. The Mercurial Gibson had joined TMS a year earlier in 1962, and along with Alston and Hudson formed a formidable supporting triumvirate to the man who truly ruled the cricketing airwaves. John Arlott. Arlott was at the peak of his considerable powers by the middle of the 1960s, and the cricket provided him with plenty of scope to unfurl his wide array of shots. Truman in again. Balls to Hawk, and Hawk goes forward, and he's caught. There's the 300. There was no nicer touch than Truman congratulating Hawk. by Cowdery. Neil Hawke can never have come into the pavilion to a greater ovation in his life, but they weren't looking at him. Fred Truman's 300th test wicket, the first man in the history of cricket to achieve the figure. There is about Dexter when he chooses to face fast bowling with determination, a, a sort of air of command that lifts him, or seems to lift him, above ordinary players. He seems to find time to play the fastest of bowling and still retain dignity, something near majesty as he does it. Uh, there's, there's a wonderful line 
from a letter that was written to him uh, in 1947 when he first went on the domestic commentary from Dylan Thomas, the, the poet, saying, you're not only the best cricket commentator, far and away that, but the best sports commentator I've heard ever. Exact, enthusiastic, prejudiced, amazingly visual, authoritative and friendly. A great pleasure to listen to you. They all get down then and in comes Barlow now to Wilson. Bowls to him, he goes forward and it pops up and he's caught. He's caught a forward short leg and Barlow is poised in an altogether different melodramatic pose which says, done it at last. And he has got his hat. Arlott had established himself as cricket's most beguiling voice. Like Alan Gibson, he had stood as a Liberal Party candidate at the 1959 general election and by the late 60s, he felt confident enough in his position at the BBC to tackle head-on the burning sporting issue of the age, apartheid. He was conscious that he might get himself into trouble, taking, as, if you like, what was regarded as a political stance. But actually, he was given quite reasonable reassurances that that would be all right. By the late 60s, the BBC had its first cricket correspondent. That was Brian Johnston. Now, Brian had a very different view about the South African involvement. He he reckoned that the tour should go ahead and um, they couldn't see that there was a problem. And while Arlett ruled the radio waves, Johnston had been the star caller on the BBC's televised cricket broadcasts since 1946. And just like the radio crew, he was on-air calling when Laker claimed his 10th, Truman his 300th, and when England saved the unsavable at Lords in 1963. Yeah, he's out! 10 wickets to Laker. That's it, he's out! Truman's got it, 300 test wickets! And the batsman, the first to applaud him. They will put everything into this, look at him just gathering his last breath. Yes, they're sucking in there. Last ball, now. It's a draw! It's a draw, England have saved the game. When Johnston returned from the war with the military cross, he was determined to live life to the full. He initially had great success in variety programming, which led to prominent roles at royal events such as the King's Funeral in 1952 and the Queen's Coronation the year after. But ahead of the 1970 season, Johnston was dumped from his TV commentary gig. The reason given was that his natural frivolity on air was no longer desirable for that medium. By now, Hudson had left the TMS box and moved to management. Installed as head of outside broadcasts, he saw an opportunity. He instinctively sensed that Johnston's waggish ways would work a treat on radio, and he saw it in simple terms. Why couldn't they expand the calling cast to accommodate a bona fide national treasure? Only good could come of it. Sure enough, it was a perfect fit. Radio was much more his natural metier. What he did was he, he sort of popularised the programme. Program. He made it more accessible. He probably brought a new audience to hear Arlott. When John has arrived and freed it up a little bit, made it more conversational. It was all much more jolly. A journalist started writing about Test Match Special. John has opened us up to a wider audience because he'd brought another audience with him from uh, from television. Arlott understood that uh, Brian's frivolity was another way of approaching the game. But even with this acclaimed recruit, as the new decade dawned, TMS still faced internal threats. After initially struggling for airtime, there was now a nagging view emerging that cricket was occupying too much space on the summer schedule. Indeed, a blueprint for the BBC's broadcasting strategy in the 1970s paid little attention to sport, full stop. As a proper cricket devotee, Hudson was mindful of neutralising these risks 
and advancing the cause he had fought for a generation earlier. Johnston was one part of the solution. Another was merging the sports news and outside broadcast departments, turning them into a far more cohesive and efficient machine by 1973. Hudson's work was bolstered on the air by the arrival of two men who had become the longest-serving commentators on TMS and also the new young producer, Peter Baxter. In the 70s, yes, we, uh, we had the, the new commentators, if you like. Henry Blofeld was an interesting one. He had done an audition in about 1970, but there weren't many openings, and he didn't hear a thing for two years. However, in the meantime, he went on New Zealand's first tour of the West Indies, and he managed to put together a package of reporting for a number of uh, different uh, newspapers. The uh, Radio New Zealand commentator, Alan Richards, had discovered that by some mistake he'd managed to sign up for two different and opposing radio stations in Jamaica at opposite end of the grounds at the same time. So he was in a bit of a mess, and he asked Blowers if he'd ever done any radio commentary. Well, Blowers, spotting an opportunity, having done this one audition, said, I've practically done nothing else, and um, was promptly signed up. I think Robert Hudson uh, must have heard about it. I don't think he could have heard it, but he heard about Blowers' mark in the West Indies. And at the end of uh, 72, that, that same year, um, he gave both Henry and CMJ their first commentaries, uh, doing the first ever one-day international series in England. And as I say, CMJ did his first test match in 73 in Blowers, and indeed Don Mosey came into the commentary team in uh, 1974 for their debuts. It didn't take Martin Jenkins, or CMJ as he would be forever known, long to get his feet firmly under the table. Mentored by Johnston from when he was a teenager, the new boy was appointed his successor as cricket correspondent in 1973. Apple turns, goes in again. Boycott, 96 not out. He bowls to him. It's a half volley, drives it down the ground, and there it is. He's done it. He lifts both hands in the air. Jeff Boycott has got his 100th hundred. And the crowd cannot resist coming on to the pitch any longer. But CMJ was also undeniably assisted in his formative TMS years by some elements of the pre-1970s lineup doing themselves no favours. It came up in 1973 and Arlott decided this was the moment that he was going to only commentate for the first half of the day. It meant that we had the business of having a sort of relief commentator for Arlott. And uh, amongst those at that time, were um, Neil Durden-Smith and uh, Alan Gibson. In the case of Gibson, uh, it was quite obvious where he spent the first half of the day. It was in the bar, because he would arrive um, after mid-afternoon, slightly the worse for wear. Gibson was a genius, a great wordsmith, but just so mischievous. And if a producer asked him to do something, he would do the opposite, 1975, was his last test match. And Phil Edmonds played his first test and took five wickets. Uh, Gibson happened to be on the air for all five of them, but unfortunately the commentary is not that good on them because uh, he had taken a certain amount of drink. And at that point, uh, we agreed that really we ought to stand him down. It wasn't just the new commentators that were refreshing the programme. Big-name summarisers were being signed up as well, and none was bigger or longer-serving on the programme than fiery Fred Truman. Well, Fred, what about that one? It's a sad thing for Tony Gregg. It's a sad thing for Tony Gregg, but what a magnificent delivery by Holding. 
He knows this high back lift of Greg's, which they've played on, and he came up the first delivery and bowled the perfect Yorker on the leg stump and knocked the leg stump right out of the ground, leaving Tony Gregg completely nonplussed. These new voices were establishing themselves, but not all of them were homegrown. Just as Alan McGilvray had become a regular fixture for Australia's tours, a young West Indian was starting out on his long and illustrious TMS journey. In comes Underwood now to Roberts, the batsman crossed, Roberts swings at it, gets an outside edge, it's going to go down to the boundary for four. That was a violent heave once more from Roberts. If he's not careful, he's going to strain something in his back because he's really swinging that bat with all the power at his disposal. Tony Cozio is just, just brilliant at it. He's the only person I know who seamlessly moved between television commentary and radio commentary. Tony nailed both, and that's very, very rare. Cozier was just a joy to work with. He knew far more what was happening in England at county level than most of the rest of us because he just kept looking it up all the time. Uh, he had a wonderful voice. He had a lovely sense of humour. He was just a master. TMS was now securely established as the sound of the English summer, but overseas tours were still covered only sporadically. Peter Baxter had vowed back in 1973 that this was an area he would address, and with a younger and more mobile crew at his disposal, Covering tours for newspapers who would foot the bill of touring, he soon got his opportunity to expand the programme's output. The winter of 1976-7, uh, when Tony Gregg took the side to India and then on to the centenary test in Melbourne, it was pretty significant, I suppose, on the overseas tours development. And I talked to CMJ, who was our only man on the tour. Henry Blofeld was out in India as well. It was a question of finding him, of course. He was uh, reporting for newspapers and that sort of thing. So he had two commentators, and um, we had our first ever commentary from India. So was, that was quite a moment. We're starting a new over, running away from us in Naibos. Kamani, oh, he's out, he's caught by Brearley at first slip. It was a short ball. He played back. He flinched at it as it lifted. And in, in an involuntary way, his bat was magnetised. It went to the ball. The ball hit the outside edge. And Brearley took the catch in a very easy way. We had always in the past taken just the last hour of... Uh, of the uh, last two hours of um, test matches in uh, on the eastern seaboard of Australia. Uh, and that we were doing that for the centenary test match. But then it was poised for such a dramatic last day with Derek Randall going great guns so we did commentary on the whole of the last day and Lily setting now a field of immense hostility two short legs four slips two gullies only one man out that's Davis and the crowd now as the sun and the beer combined do their work away in the distance uh, letting out the chant of Lily 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 and appealing for some quite remarkable non-events. For Arlett, it was only right, even though he was a reluctant tourist, that he was in Melbourne to commentate that historic centenary test. His days were voluntarily numbered, but despite failing health, his powers on the mic still shone through as he rose to the biggest of occasions. Now difficult, not only to bowl a maiden over, but apparently to bowl a maiden ball. <laughs> Gilmore comes in and bowls, and Lloyd hits him. Oh, how tragic! 
how tragic, how tragic, how tragic. We welcome World Service with the news that Randall has just this minute been sacrificially run out and England are 52 for three. The summarisers respected John so much that they wouldn't say anything. I mean, you never interrupted John Arlott. You never talked over John Arlott. It was very strict. We talk between overs and that was it in those days. The sands of time, though, were cascading through the hourglass. The strain on Arlott's health was getting too much. The Test Match special long-time patriarch decided to call it a day at Lord's for the second centenary test in 1980 at the age of 66. Naturally, it was with the minimum of fuss. I had said, though, why don't you do the, the last session of the day to finish off? And he said, no, I don't want to do anything different. So at ten past three, he finished. That's the end of the over, 69 for two. And after Trevor Bailey, it will be Christopher Martin Jenkins. And just like that, after 33 years on air, the North Star of TMS was done. And we all applauded in the back of the commentary box, and Trevor, who was on with him, took uh, paid a, a little tribute. Arlott then had to scuttle off to the news box to do a piece for the PM programme on Radio 4. The applause was for John Arlott, his last commentary. And uh, Trevor, the entire Australian fielders clapping. Jeff Boycott having a clap there. I'm sure the entire ground clapping at that announcement. A moment indeed of nostalgia in a very nostalgic match. So he was never aware of what happened on the field because at the end of the next over, the ground announcer, Alan Curtis, announced to the crowd that at the end of the previous over, John Arlott had done his last Test match commentary. And the players of both sides out in the field, I remember Jeff Boycott was batting, they turned and looked up at the commentary box and applauded. It was a lovely moment. It was very sad that I don't think Arlott was aware of it at all when it happened. A sad moment it was, but a moment that said so much, not just about Arlott, but about Test Match Special. But yes, it does represent the affection that um, Test Match Special seems to have... uh, received in the in the eyes of the listeners stick with us after a quick break we'll be back with part two of calling the shots dan while we're taking a break from calling the shots i want to tell you a little bit about an organization called bear cricket they make sexy sexy cricket bats in west yorkshire Um, high quality products at affordable prices they've been around since 2016 adam brown who's an ecb level three performance coach runs the operation there and you jump on the website bearcricket.co.uk and you pop in calling the shots at the price bar and you can get yourself 10 percent off and dan the reason why it's timely that we're talking about cricket bats is that it feels like the english summer might be coming. We might be playing cricket this year. And if we're going to play cricket this year, why wouldn't you want to get yourself a beautiful new cricket bat? Oh, for sure. I mean, those nets, they could yet open up, you know. The nets you could go play in in like sort of June, July. Who knows whether we'll get to actually play games, but we'll be able to practice, I'm sure. And what There is nothing better in this whole world, it seems to me, than that sense of getting your bat home, taking it home with you, placing it on your bed, smelling it, running your nose from the very bottom of the bat all the way up to the handle tip and imagining the glories that you're going to produce with that bat. 
Uh, it doesn't always work out that way, of course, but that's 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 the way of life. Mm, you've got me purring down just thinking about it. Handcrafted English Willow cricket bats grown and manufactured here in the UK with master bat makers with Willow from Private Forest. And I note again, at affordable prices compared to the mass manufactured cricket bats, when you jump on bearcricket.co.uk, you realise there is a difference there as well. So it's accessible. Uh, there is a, a 10% discount. And, and Daniel, it's also used by professionals in the county championship at the moment, including one who you work with on Test Match Special. Ah, oh, the mighty Tim Mill of course uh, a man not necessarily renowned for his batting but it's getting he's getting better and better and better at it in fact he talks with great pleasure and glee about his batting feats whenever we've worked together commentating on uh, various cricket matches uh, and also there's Will Rhodes now Will Rhodes is involved in this company a Warwickshire player an opening partner of Dom Sibley uh, they've formed a formidable partnership at the top of Warwickshire's order I wonder if we're going to see him an England shirt and see a bare cricket bat on a test cricket ground before too long. Indeed, Yorkshire's wicketkeeper Johnny Tattersall is also part of the family and that's what it is too. It's a small organisation which means it is accessible. So through all their social media channels, Bear Cricket on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, they want to get that kind of feedback. It's a brilliant joint. We love working with them. So ahead of this 2020 season, whatever it looks like, jump on bearcricket.co.uk, pop in calling the shots at the price bar, Get yourself 10% off, enjoy your blade, and enjoy the rest of the show. In the absence of Arlet, TMS was now, by any measure, the Johnners show. With the new cast from the 1970s bedded in, there was a consistency of purpose from test to test, underpinned by the main man's irrepressible playfulness. A streaker has arrived. Um, a very, very obvious streaker. And he's running on, he is holding some sort of hat in his hand. He's got socks and shoes on. Wrist, oh, very bad form. He, he, he climbed over the board and it was hard than he thought. And it was a little bit painful for him, I think. Um, you heard the ooh from the crowd. This was also the era of the TMS nickname. Don Mosey became the alderman. Bailey the Boyle, Truman Sir Frederick. Scorer Bill Frindle, comparatively anonymous on air to that point, was routinely called upon as Johnston's bearded wonder. Well, Brown set the tone. He transformed Test Match Special from that tight cricket programme to a soap opera, really, with these characters that... He sort of created and enlarged. And Sir Frederick with his pipe chuntering away in the background. You can see and both them looking at Dennis Lilly and he is enjoying it immensely. Dennis is not enjoying of course, he's not, he's, he's the bowler. But uh, Ian Botham is certainly enjoying himself out there. And when he hit Dennis Lilly through the covers for four off the back foot, a majestic shot, I think, would be the oh, word. Oh, it was wonderful, oh, wasn't it? You wouldn't see a better shot if you lived till you were 250. Magnificent shot. And he's really enjoying it. Trevor, just a man of few words, literally. He really, it was a superb square cut. Flashed to the boundary, no one moved. <laughs> Went like a rocket. And then you had, you know, you had Chris and you had Henry and, and all of that. Here's Willis in, bows to Bright. Bright bowled, the middle stumps out of the ground. England have won. They've won by 18 runs. Willis runs around, punching the air. The boys invade the ground and the players run helter skelter for the pavilion. Well, what a finish. A phenomenal performance by Bob Willis and Australia all out for 111. It's not just a sports programme because that tradition of the characters involved in it 
has, has, has endured. And sitting in the middle of it all, pulling the strings and making the audience an additional character in the cast was Johnston. Love for this approach wasn't universal, especially from those who grew up with Arlett's more serious disposition, but it was integral in growing TMS the institution. The sillier things got, the better it seemed to work. I had a letter after the West Indies that played the over. She said, Mr Johnston, she said, I enjoy your um, commentaries very much. You must be more careful. A lot of young people listened in. Do you know what you said the other day? And uh, she then said, well, when we came over, Michael Holding was bowling to Peter Willie. You said, welcome to the Oval. Well, the bowler's holding the batsman's Willie. <laughs> Brown Johnston would watch Neighbours. <laughs> He'd sit there with a portable telly, uh, eating his sandwich. And uh, he'd find out Paul Getty afterwards, and they'd chat about what Mrs Mangle was up to. Uh, and then you'd welcome listeners back to Test Match Special. I mean, it was, it was bizarre. And so you'd hand, and that's how the cake started. You know, well, the players coming off for tea. Uh, lucky old them, they were going for some cake. Don't worry about us. Uh, you'll join us again in 15 minutes. And that's when the first cake turned up, because somebody felt sorry for, for Brian's. Ah, yes, the cakes. I got a call from the uh, press office at Buckingham Palace saying that... Uh, her Majesty wanted to give us a cake. It was a, an amazing moment, a quite extraordinary moment. Uh, Brian Johnston said it's just a bunch of friends going to a test match and talking about it. And I think somewhere in the mix of all that is, is uh, probably how it sits in the nation's affection. TMS under Johnston was conferring increasing celebrity on its performers, and now, with one lunchtime slot to fill on a Saturday when they didn't have to revert to Radio 3's musical offerings, it seemed the most natural thing in the world to bring in celebrities to sprinkle further stardust on the programme. Over the four decades since View from the Boundary started in 1980, the acclaimed guests have kept rolling in. Well, our distinguished guest is sitting watching a game of blind cricket. It's a, a marvellous game and they're enjoying it out there in the middle. And watching it is Peter Toole. Uh, what a morning's cricket today, Peter. Uh, Musharraf, Pakistan, Tabu and Becky, Nelson Mandela, who I mentioned, wasn't a view from the boundary, but I interviewed him. You know, it's, it's ridiculous, the people that you have access to. And when Johnston wasn't describing the astounding feats of Ian Botham in that epic summer of 1981, he was reporting on the heir to the throne's nuptials. And now I get my first sight of the bride. And down the steps will come the two bridesmaids who will accompany them. They're waiting for her now. Through the early part of the 1980s, Don Mosey, who called his first test in 1974, had been the de facto BBC cricket correspondent. And while TMS with Mosey as a regular commentator reigned supreme at home, Baxter had still not cracked the code for overseas tours. Mosey had gone to the West Indies in 1980 to cover a tour that would see one test match cancelled because a Guyanese government objected to England's selection of Robin Jackman, who had played and coached in South Africa. Then later on that tour, legendary English batsman and now coach of the national side, Ken Barrington, had suddenly died. And the feeling was that, that Don Mosey had not quite been up to the pace of the news coverage. And uh, my managing editor said, um, I actually have another solution. We could send uh, Peter Baxter and um, he could do all the news reports. And then he said to me, oh, and incidentally, you might as well produce Test Map Special while you're there. Um, so it was done that way round. Mosey, much to his annoyance, had been left out of the 82-83 team to cover the Ashes, but he was brought back in 83-84 to cover the Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll Tour of New Zealand. Ian Botham was both front and back page news, but again, Mosey failed to hit the mark. So Baxter went himself to India the following winter for a tour that would have far-reaching positive consequences for the programme. Helpfully as well, it became a breeding ground for Test Match Special's Generation Next. I was on the... 1984-5 tour. Uh, anyway, I'm there. As ever, I'm not in the team. 
and we are in Delhi. And Peter Baxter is producing the programme and it's got to the final day and England have got a chance of winning. And usually for Peter Baxter in India, the problem is the wires go down, the line goes down. But on this occasion, it was a different problem. He'd run out of summarisers. Mike Selvey was afflicted with Delhi Belly. And England are about to win against the odds on the fifth afternoon. And there's a knock on the dressing room door. In walks Peter Baxter, which you could do in those days very easily. And he says, uh, have you got anyone spare? Is anyone spare? Well, I, of course, I'm spare. Uh, I stick my hand up and lo and behold, I'm whisked off to the commentary box. Uh, and I do a, my first ever stint for a couple hours. Vic Marks wasn't the only man to make an impression on Baxter in India. He got to know Aggers on that tour, did Peter. It was a very close-knit tour because of all the other stuff going on, so press and players were very close. We were rather thrown together at the start of a tour because uh, Mrs Gandhi was assassinated on the day we landed, and uh, so we were all incarcerated in the same hotel, pretty much in the same predicament. And we thought the tour would be called off. In fact, we went to Sri Lanka for a couple of weeks to sort of let things calm down, then came back again. Uh, there was a small matter of Bhopal going on as well. We thought we were bound to go home. Uh, there were more assassinations. The Deputy High Commissioner, Percy Norris, was shot uh, two days before the start of the Mumbai test. We thought we were bound to go home there. These newly formed friendships would reap dividends when cricket returned to England for the Ashes summer of 1985. I had started a tea time session called County Talk, in which I got three county players, current county players, senior county players, uh, all three of them, as it happened, I'd got to know on the 84-5 tour of India. Agus was the first I recruited. Graham Fowler was the, the second I recruited. And I asked them both, who should we get as our third one? And they both said, without hesitation, Vic Marks. The 1980s was the period of most cast stability on TMS, with Johnston at the helm, supported by regulars CMJ, Blofeld, Mosey, Truman and Bailey. But as the 90s loomed, Baxter knew he needed to refresh the cast list once again. I was beginning to get a bit twitchy about the fact that we had our main two summarisers had not played in the, the helmet era. I had started to try and break it up a bit by bringing in a few new people. Mike Selvey and Vic Marks certainly came in at about that time. And then eventually the moment came when we said, no, we're moving on. But that is the nature of a summariser. You do need to move on, much more than a commentator. By the end of the decade, much as it was 20 years earlier, there were challenges on the horizon. The Thatcher government put the frighteners up TMS in 1989 when legislating that the BBC would be forced to relinquish two radio frequencies. And unfortunately, one of them was Radio 3 Medium Wave, our network. So suddenly we were going to be without a home. And as the, uh, as the 90s started... Questions were asked in the House of Commons about the future of Test Match Special. Yet again, the programme was facing an existential crisis. The message was clear. Ball-by-ball -ball commentary for every day of play could no longer be guaranteed. Enter Jonathan Agnew. I was the disc jockey in BBC Radio Leicester. It was to join the Today newspaper as their cricket correspondent. And his first act, he'd been playing at the end of the season. And then he get, a few weeks later, he was on a plane to Australia to cover the uh, 1991 England tour of Australia. And I knew that Christopher Martin Jenkins had announced that after that tour he was going to the, tele the Daily Telegraph. So I knew I was looking for a new cricket correspondent. I was asked for my suggestion for a cricket correspondent, and I said, well, I think Agus is probably 
the best shout. It was a big call by Peter Baxter. I think David Gower was interested, actually, just at the end of his career. And he'd done uh, what was probably an invaluable year or so working uh, for Today newspaper. Just uh, And that might have helped just hone the news element that was more or less absent entirely, I suspect, from TMS. To have had a bit of a tabloid experience was perhaps surprising as a necessity for Test Match Special in those days, but I think as correspondent, it was important to have that. Despite not being a disciple of the programme, Agnew quickly learned the ropes. I think if I had had the sort of history of just being glued to Test Match Special and being a a TMS junkie, I would have found it much more nerve-wracking that first day when I walked into Headingley. I hadn't actually ever done any commentary on anything. So all I did that first summer, apart from the last test, uh, was to be a summariser, and then I made my debut. Graham Gooch, 99, not out, waiting now as Ramanaika starts to move away from us, parts the uh, disc. Bowls to Gooch, it's pitched up, he drives hard towards Midon, that'll be it. An excellent diving stop there by Midon, cuts off a boundary, but Gooch completes the single, raises his bat high, he's on 100, not out, his 15th test century. You know, I don't ever remember him stumbling along. He was a natural. Uh, you know, he was the round peg in the round hole, almost from the word go, I think. I mean, come on, I was learning from the best. I was learning that summer from Brian, from Tony Cozier, from Chris Martin Jenkins, Don Mosey. And he developed an instant rapport with the main man. Yeah, I was only 31 at the time. Jonas was, what, um, 70, 81? 81, wasn't it? Yeah. So there was this sort of like a granddad gap. Before Agnew's first season was over, he and Johnston had combined unwittingly on air to produce one of the most played pieces of cricket commentary ever. Agnews, <laughs> for goodness sake, stop it. Yes, Lawrence, well, Lawrence well. But initially they were far from convinced that they had a hit on their hands. He hit a four over the weekkeeper's head. And it didn't seem like a great career move at the time because Brian Johnston was so hacked off about it that he stomped out of the box. He felt he'd let the side down, it was stupid and everything else. And he, he was really very grumpy. Uh, his son Barry told me how he got home that night and was really, really quite forlorn about the whole thing. It was only the next day when the letters started coming. And also the Today programme, I did the Today programme the next morning and Gary Richardson played it. And everyone was laughing, of course, in the Today Studio. I thought, it might, it might turn out all right after all. From 1991 to 1993, after losing their long-term home on Radio 3, TMS had been channel hopping. In 1994, at last, the programme found a new home. And not any new home either. The promised land of Radio 4 Longwave. Johnston, by now a CBE, was personally consulted by BBC management before the move was given the go-ahead. Needless to say, all and sundry were thrilled with this development. The future of Test Match Special then was very much in the balance. It really was. And as I said, it, it was because they could put Brian Johnston out there, who had a massive influence with you know the director general and all this sort of stuff. And Brian was just an icon. But sadly, TMS would enter the bright new world of Radio 4 without the man who had made it possible. On the 5th of January 1994... Brian Johnston died from complications after suffering a heart attack five weeks earlier. The bosses at Radio 4 were unhappy, but there was nothing they could do. The deal had been sealed. And at some point I said, you're, what you're saying is that Brian John, if Brian Johnston had died uh, a, little, a month or two earlier, you would not have us at all. And they said, that's exactly what we're saying, yes. I, I, I doubt 
you know, if, if he hadn't been around, I, I doubt would have done it. And I don't know where T- Test Match Special would have gone, but it, it was built around this massive character and, and just you know, radio genius. In the three years where the pair did cross over, Johnston left a lasting impression on the man who would now helm the show on Radio 4. Brian and I did have an amazing relationship. It didn't last long enough, unfortunately. It was only three years, but we, we, we were just so similar. And he had a massive influence on me. Not to a broadcaster I'd want to be, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't have the courage to have, to have been it. Brian sort of gave me the wings, if you like, to, to do it in his style. You're talking to, the, to the, the person at the other end of the radio, and that's... That's what the programme is all about. No sooner had Johnston died, though, than Agnew, with his correspondent hat on, faced his sternest test yet. Although I was the BBC cricket correspondent, there was no really serious story knocking about, not really, until suddenly we had the dirt in the pocket. The chairman of selectors, Ray Illingworth, is continuing to staunchly support Mike Atherton, but the England captain's position is looking increasingly precarious. Agnew took quite a strong line. And he was pretty harsh on Afton. In my opinion, the England captain, far from simply drying his fingers, was attempting to alter the state of the ball in direct contravention of Law 42.5. OK, I took, a, I took a hard line, but, you know, we'd taken a hard line against Pakistan and the ball tampering uh, when they were last over. So Agus is still pretty fresh to the job. And this is one of the big challenges. You're suddenly presented with a situation where someone has to pronounce... Uh, and the correspondent has to pronounce it. The England captain's previously squeaky clean image has been tarnished irrevocably. And Atherton will have to choose between either riding out the storm or reconsidering his position. He took an instinctive, firm line against Atherton. And that was a big challenge. And he, he, he had the bravery to, to take that line. It was a seminal moment. It's one of those moments when you cross over from being player to judge where you realise you are now, you know, you are now having to operate as a journalist rather than a, a cheerful old player doing a bit of media work. It was me doing my job. Whether I was right or wrong, it makes no difference, really. You know, I was doing what I thought was my job. It was clear that a new journalistic rigour was being introduced to a show that had unashamedly avoided controversy up to that point. The cakes and japes remained, but that harder edge was obvious too. And Agus actually introduced a far more news-orientated sort of feel to it. Brian Johnson, you know, was not a newsman. There would be no great ambition for the people at TMS to have the rest of the press corps saying, have you heard what so-and-so just said on TMS? <laughs> we better follow that up. And a subtle shift in commentary style as well. Agus commentates by having a conversation. He expects a conversation throughout the over. But Johnson certainly... Did not. And it's evolved more as a conversational thing. There was no replacing Johnston, but there was the chance to retain some of his charm when one of the familiar voices returned to TMS in 1994. He'd been working for Sky around that time, and he got brought back into the fold when Brian Johnson passed away. And the throw at the stumps by Ahmed, it's gone for four overthrows, so five runs, buzzers indeed, absolutely. Buzzers like that. Where did buzzers come from? Buzzers. Well, we always used to call it buzzers when I played cricket at school. Now, whenever I've said it before, people will look at me and think I'm, I'm, I'm a lunatic. Well, that may be so, but um, <laughs> we still call them buzzers. Henry was a rogue, but the most lovable of rogues. The odd thing about Henry, I think, is that his greatest fans were very often women and children. They just loved listening to him uh, because maybe he was so over the top and ridiculous. I don't know. Agnew also had a number of experienced voices by his side. He had CMJ there, who'd already been cricket correspondent, 
and was a senior, you know, media figure. Well, he's 98, not out now, and Fraser Bowes, Germany, drives it through mid-off, and this is Sachin Tendulkar's first Test 100, driven up towards the mid-off boundary. Lewis in pursuit. They'll get three runs for it. And this 17-year-old has become the second youngest Test Centurion in cricket history. A heroic performance. Really the stuff of which schoolboy novels were made. But not all of those familiar voices would survive on the show until the new millennium. It was part of the programme's success that there were few people on it. So it, it, it was a much tighter cast. But I think as the programme became a bit more newsy, I think therefore the feeling was that you get more current people on. And it also, it was a bit ridiculous when you had Fred and Trevor summarising on a one-day international when neither of them had ever, had ever played in one. Um, uh, and didn't really know, as Fred would say, what was going off out there. In this rejuvenation of the summarizer's bench, Selby was welcomed back to the fold. After his initial appearances in the mid to late 1980s, he had lost his spot on the team on account of a mutual antipathy with Johnston, underscored by a fundamental disagreement over the timing of South Africa's readmission. But following Johnston's death in 1994, he was reunited with Marks, the man who replaced him when he had Delhi Belly 10 years earlier. Graham Fowler and David Lloyd completed the revamp. Graham Fowler. Oh, my old teammate, he was a natural and with a very distinctive voice and not so f- And Bumble, the, but I mean, Accrington was overrepresented to start with, but Bumble was obviously a natural. I think even if you ask Bumble now, I think he really treasured the freedom that radio gave him to go anywhere his crazy mind wanted to take him. Uh, and dear Self, who did it for nearly 30 years, I should think, he's a very good sort of natural thinker. An independent thinker. Armed with full-time journalist summarisers with ears close to the dressing room, Baxter could finally create an all-year-round TMS voice. No longer did he have to cobble together a commentary team from whoever happened to be touring. In Selvi, Marks, Agnew and CMJ, augmented by voices like Tony Cozier and Jim Maxwell, who were already familiar to audiences back in England, he could create a consistent sound for home and away test matches for the very first time. But while an ever-increasing list of former players were occupying the summarisers' chair... The commentary team retained its link to the cricket enthusiast through Henry Blofeld and perhaps more importantly CMJ, now into his third decade on the team. Christopher never ever lost that total amateur's love of the game. It's the only place that CMJ was totally relaxed was when he had a microphone in front of him. His life was chaos. He was late, he'd forgotten this. He was scrambling. He was trying to do five things at once. But once you put the microphone in front of him, he was wonderfully in control. (laughs) He should have lived his life with the microphone in front of him. He was the no-frills English gentleman who, with his beautiful voice and his powers of observation, would tell you exactly what's happening. And life suddenly seemed to be in order when he was at the microphone, I would suggest. He was a brilliant broadcaster. And to complete the lineup that would take TMS into this new era was a man who has to date been with the programme for 24 years. Someone like Simon Mann, who did his first test match in, in uh, 1996 in, uh, in Zimbabwe, is a very traditional uh, and technically brilliant commentator. He's got it absolutely right. What I think Simon demonstrates beautifully is that when you're doing that programme, it's no point trying to put on an act. He has many attributes. One of them is he doesn't try and be something he isn't. Another is he's got a very sharp new sense himself. He's a terrific interviewer. He tells you what's going on. And he's got his own dry wit as well. 
Once again, Baxter had blended change with continuity. Test Match Special was bigger than ever, going from strength to strength, and equipped not only for a new decade, but for a new century. Thank you to Jonathan Agnew, Peter Baxter and Vic Marks for being outstanding guests on this third episode of Calling the Shots. A reminder that Calling the Shots has been produced in partnership with The Pinch Hitter, a fabulous new initiative from the same people who bring you The Night Watchman. During this time of global uncertainty, this exciting new digital magazine will be released once a fortnight, chock full of contributions from some of the best freelance cricket writers in the world. Calling the Shots arrives alongside each edition of The Pinch Hitter, which you can subscribe to at thenightwatchman.net. There is a link to Edition 4 sitting in the show notes for this episode. It is made on a pay-what-you-can-afford basis, with all financial contributions going back into commissioning more brilliant cricket writing. In closing, thanks to Jay Mueller at Bad Producer Productions for making this show possible. Call of the Shots is another proud member of the Bad Producer family. For more of their shows, jump on badproducerproductions.com. That's all from us today on Calling the Shots. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks for episode four, where we'll change gears when cricketing's broadcasting revolution was televised. And as we sign off, last time we left you with the worst for wear, Tommy Woodruff. This time, well, how could it be anything else? Of course, the Legover. Until, Until next, next time, time bye, bye for, for now. now. Tried to step over the stumps and just flipped a bail with his with his right. He Mollusk tried to do the splits over it and unfortunately uh, the inner part of his thigh must have just removed the bail. He just just didn't quite get his leg over. Anyhow, he, he did very well indeed, batting 131 minutes and hit three fours. Agus do stop it. Um, Lawrence, uh, always entertaining, batting for 30, 35. <laughs> 35 minutes, hit a four over the week keepers. <laughs> Angus, for goodness sake, stop it. <laughs> yes, Lawrence. Lawrence, right. Suit me well. He hit a four over the weekkeeper's head. And he was out for nothing. A tough for 12 minutes. Then was caught by Haynes on Patson for two. And there were 54 extras. And take them all out for 419. I've stopped laughing now. <laughs> <laughs>